0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Do please sit down. Um, if you've got this sense of deja vu, I've heard that gospel reading before. You're right, we had it last week as well, uh, but we had a complete mix-up over readings, but actually it's, it's good to hear things again. You, know, you might remember it a bit better. Anyway. Roll up, roll up, right. your prayer life's not what it is. Your business is failing, your children are revolting, even on Father's Day. Your partner's been unfaithful, you're being sued left, right and centre. But God blesses his faithful children, so there must be unconfessed sin in your life, compromised lifestyle, or even worse, satanic activity. And the Reverend Hezekiah, the anointed prophet of God, will come and pray with you and deliver you from all these things drive the demons out and restore you to prosperity and by the way the stewards will come round and the biblical mandate is for 10% of your income and we can accept credit cards um, and there's a turnstile at the gate um, because if you don't give God will not bless you trouble is that passage from Job is a corrective to this frankly anti-Christian nonsense but you will hear it and it happens in some areas. And it's not just a product of a strange bit of American fundamentalism. You'll find it happening in this country as well. And the lecture is given us for this week, that wonderful passage from Job chapter 38, which was read earlier. It's God's reply to Job, and it goes on for three chapters about God's wonderful works. A rehearsal of his power. You questioned me, but were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? You have to sympathize a bit with the poor disciples in that gospel reading. A miraculous or so it would seem, stealing of the storm and then the safety of dry land. Oh, a sigh of relief. You know, I'm not getting back in that boat again, sort of, you know, no matter what happens, I'm glad that's all over. But they weren't safe on dry land because the next thing that happens, they come across the local madman, uh, who's terrorized everybody in sight, and is now possessed, is possessed by a legion of demons. And has immense physical strength as well, so is a dangerous person to know. And Jesus calmly ejects the demons, and a herd of pigs commit mutual suicide by jumping off a cliff. Who is this person we're following? Two impossible events in one day. And we thought earlier on today we were going away for a rest. They were on a steep learning curve. They did recover and often got things wrong later in life. Really encouraging because we do as well. But the experience for those for whom the book of Job is most helpful are not like that. They are the many in the Christian faith who found God to become mysteriously absent just when they need him. They've suffered in various ways and they can't see why. Somebody once wrote that the book of Job can be read as an early account of the gospel, of a righteous person who suffers for no reason, and God rescues him. that's actually quite a good, um, if you like, little brief pen portrait of the book of Job. But Job cries out to his friend Bildad, He's walled up my ways so I cannot pass, and he's set darkness upon my paths. In chapter 19. Why do do bad things happen to good people? And when it's you, why have the heavens turned to brass and prayer is not even just talking to yourself, it just bounces back like in an echo chamber? It's a common experience. And that's where Job is. He has three friends who try and point out that he must have done something wrong, he must have failed, he must be a sinner. Um, He must be responsible for his own predicament otherwise he wouldn't be there and unfortunately there are plenty of spiritual friends in the Christian Church today of all shapes and sizes who will assume that that is possibly the case well let's see what it is that you need to change as it were to make everything better there must be uncompressed sin or irregular relationships or like Jonah you're running away from what God wants you to do Get it sorted out repent and confess and change direction and everything will be well well it won't And what needs to be said firmly and job is a worked example of this is god is neither vindictive nor seeking to wreak vengeance on wrongdoers that's why the wicked prosper and don't get punished god doesn't just arbitrarily inflict if you like smiting on people He's not up there thinking, who shall I smite today? No. In whatever situation you're in, and whatever suffering it is, and however good or bad your spiritual life is, particularly if it's not very good, it's not your fault. And we can come to see our sacramental observance here, or our Christian social radicalism, two different ways of expressing your faith, it's just delusory religious games. We're going round the paths. We're going in circles. We're illustrating that Job's comment to Bildad. He's walled me in. I'm, just, I'm stuck in a maze. Actually, and there is no exit. Every time I go round, I come to the same place again. And I realize that there's actually a big hole in the life of what used to be a vibrant faith. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? That's what it appears to be. It doesn't affect every Christian, and when it does, it will be in different ways. It could be when your prayer life has actually led you, as it were, to see God as a place of emptiness, that suddenly what was alive and vibrant is not there, or rather it's not there in a different way, and you don't know why. When words like liberation and justice and social engagement that have motivated many people for many years run up against the apparently incurable destructiveness of human beings. And all the programs that we thought were so indicative of our Christian faith, again, just go over the same ground over and over again. Or it can be for some pent-up frustrations with the church, and goodness knows the church can be frustrating enough, actually both as a, in the congregation, and actually if you work for it as well. Frustrations with the liturgy, the hollowness and banality of a lot of modern liturgy, and a sudden realisation that actually there was never any meaning there at all. Do you just give up? Well, if language about God cannot survive this kind of testing, it cannot refer to anything. This loss of faith of any meaning in religious language, and she was expressed very well by uh, the Victorian poet Matthew Arnold in his poem Dover Beach, where the only consolation was to be found in personal relationships when faced with the wreckage of religious faith. I was thinking of reading the whole poem but actually it takes takes a bit long, I'll just read a small bit. where. He talked about Dover Beach because he talks about the tide going out over Dover Beach and this vast, um, the, the grating roar of the pebbles as the waves draw back and fling their return up the high strand. And then he says, "The sea of faith was like this once, full and round the earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind." down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and fight where ignorant armies clash by night. A later poet, T.S. Eliot, offers us another way, not simply retreating into into a personal relationship, if you like, divorced from whether our faith is real or not, which is what Matthew Arnold was offering. T.S. Eliot offers us a more difficult way out of that unpass. Let the darkness come upon you in East Coker, he writes, which for you shall be the darkness of God. It involves a letting go, which is not easy. I don't think I've got there. I'm only a pilgrim on the way. I need to ask myself, what is it I really want? Always the best question. Do I want a spirituality, a mystical experience, inner peace, Or do I want God? And if I really want God, I must be prepared to let go of all those other things. I may get them back later in a different form, but I must be prepared to let them go, because they they themselves are no substitute for God himself. What did the disciples on that boat really want? What they got was a terrifying experience of salvation, They've been with a man that wind and waves obeyed. Can they live with him? Can they die with him? And this is the clue. The constant stress in the Gospels on the necessity to follow the way of Christ, to live and to die with him, to take up his cross, to be baptized with his baptism, the focus in the passion and the death of Jesus, the passion in Gethsemane and on Calvary, Jesus is presented to us as the one human being who had unconditional intimacy with the Father, and yet, in some sense, had to be abandoned and had to let go of that relationship. Why hast thou forsaken me? This very closeness to God sends him to the hell of suffering. And this is Father's Day. And what model do we have there? That of the absent Father. In Gethsemane, we see that intimate uh, uh, sort of intimacy of Abba, Father, and the demand it makes of God, of Jesus having to refuse all consoling substitutes. Jesus has to say to his Father, in effect, whatever happens, I will accept whatever it is from your hand. Nothing can break our communion. However little I feel it or like it, ...or it fits with my previous experience. And that happens on Calvary. That gives us great hope. Because whatever model we might have of fatherhood... ...and hopefully for most of us it's a good one... ...but for many it's not. The abusive, the absent, the violent father... ...the manipulating father... that Jesus, by going through that abandonment, is his own father, and, but being welcomed into the unconditional intimacy with him later. That redeems the suffering of all who would like to follow in that path. It doesn't remove the evidence of the pain and it doesn't remove the scars, because we have to remember that Jesus after he he rose from the dead, still bore the scars of his crucifixion. And we will still bear the scars of whatever it is that we have suffered and had to experience, whether through our own fault or whether through the fault of others. Yet in that unconditional intimacy of the Trinity, we in Christ are bound up with him. And when that terrible darkness that we may be in breaks through, he then sets us free to be loved and to give myself to his brothers and his sisters. And when we reach that point, and it's a difficult point, then we can say with the psalmist, the darkness is no darkness with thee. The night is as clear as the day. Refuse all consoling imitations of the presence of god you won't find it in the liturgy you won't find it in social action you won't find it in relationships with others you won't find it anywhere than with god himself and then you will find all others remember the words of king george vi on the radio broadcast on the outbreak of the second world war So go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be better to you than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and, finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the lone east. Amen. Amen.